Well, last week I, I began um, in Acts chapter 13 by telling you about this man. What's his name again? His name is? John Hancock. John, John Hancock. William Carey is his name. <clears throat> and I told you the story about how he grew up in a small rural village in England and how he grew up uh, relatively poor and how um, he was a, a shoemaker and as he was apprenticing to know how to how to make shoes. He was converted to Christ through the, the fellow shoemaking apprentice, John War was his name. And I told you of his heart for geography and for foreign lands and for his heart to bring the gospel to foreign lands and uh, especially those who'd never heard the gospel before and through tumult and <clears throat> difficulty, how eventually he just pressed on and pressed on and the Baptist Missionary Society was formed and how in 19... In 1792, rather, he and John Thomas were sent out to go to India with the gospel. And uh, he would spend 40 years there and never return. And, and his going out was the first of its kind, because never before in modern history had Christians banded together to raise enough resources to, to send out believers to distant lands with a mission of spreading the gospel to those who'd never heard before. Just the, the, the prevailing wind of the day was just kind of let it happen, let it happen. And William Carey says, no, we need to be super intentional about this. And, and William Carey really was, was the driving force behind the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, which really transformed modern missions. And that's why William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. Now, I told you the story last week of William Carey because... His story parallels what we see in the first three verses of the book of Acts, of, of Acts chapter 13. So you can open your Bibles now. We're going we're gonna to read those here in a little bit, Acts chapter 13. But, but in the first three verses that we looked at last week, uh, we see some men banding together, uh, deciding to send out some of the representatives into foreign and distant lands with the mission of spreading the gospel to those who'd never heard before, exactly like William Carey had done. I want to read these verses for you. Acts 13, 1-3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, that's where we left off last week. We left off as Barnabas and Saul were, were sent off by the church to bring the gospel to the nations in fulfillment, really, of the Great Commission, in fulfillment of, of Luke's outline of the book of Acts, the, the prophecy of Jesus given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. I mentioned last week how that, that witness to Jerusalem took place in Acts chapters 1 through 7. As the, the disciples and the apostles were, were there in Jerusalem and they were content just kind of staying there until Stephen was killed, martyred for his faith, and then everyone was scattered. And that's when the gospel really went out, but it sort of like just happened naturally as it went out. It went to Judea in the south. It went to Samaria in the north. And, and it even spread far beyond even what we actually read in Acts. But that's Acts chapters 8 through 12. And now beginning in Acts chapter 13, through the rest of the chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to see going out to the ends of the earth. 
We see Barnabas and Saul being sent out here on their mission to the ends of the earth, but it's just the beginning. And this is where I get the title of my message this morning, The Beginning of the Mission to the Ends of the Earth. That's what we see here. This is the beginning of Acts 13, which is the missions that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. An ancient Chinese philosopher said this, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And that's what we see this morning. We see the first step of a a long journey, which takes us from Acts 13 through Acts 28. But even when you get to Acts 28, the mission is far from complete. They they hardly reach the ends of the earth. In fact, if you look here, here's a map of the whole world, right, laid out flat. And, uh, right, kids, we know where we are. Maybe you can put a star in your notes about uh, right where we are in in Rockford, Illinois. And, And what I have outlined here is I have... The block upon which Paul traveled in his missionary journey. So that's hardly to the ends of the earth. This is all Acts 13 through Acts 28. These are all the journeys of which Paul did. And his first journey that we're going to look at this morning is just right there in that really small box. As he goes out on this first step of a, of a, a long journey. Want to zoom in now to this, this map? I trust you can see there Antioch is in the picture. That Antioch is, is that great church we looked at a couple weeks past. Acts chapter 11 describes that great church about these people who are scattered because of Stephen's persecution, right? And, and Jerusalem, if you, if you look, is actually way, way down here someplace. Jerusalem's down here. They scattered up to Antioch and, uh, People started coming to Christ. The hand of the Lord was with them. And, and Barnabas right, was sent out by Jerusalem to go and to visit these people. And Barnabas went up to Tarsus to get Saul. You can see Tarsus there on the map as well. Went up to get Saul and to, and to come back as well. And so Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas were there for a whole year as they were teaching the church. And, and they had just at the end of chapter 12, they had, had gone down to Jerusalem with his gift to help them in the famine. And they'd come back again. And now they're fasting and praying. And then they're sent out as a church. That's what we read in verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And that's really where our text begins this morning. As Paul and Barnabas are just heading off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold... The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now the first thing we notice here, even in verse 4, is that the Holy Spirit sent out Barnabas and Saul on their journey. Look, look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to, to Cyprus. But 
in, in verse 3 we read that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. The, the, the leaders talk about the church. The church is fasting and praying. So the, the church sent them out in verse 3, but the Holy Spirit sent them out in verse 4, which is right. Well, they're both right. Because that's the way the Holy Spirit works in the life of the church. We act, but the Holy Spirit's behind our actions. I mean, if indeed we're in the center of the will of God, right? It's not, not going off to sin. The Holy Spirit's not involved in that. But, but prayerfully seeking the Lord for guidance, it is the Lord, it is the Holy Spirit who acts through our actions. We'll see this later in Acts chapter 20 when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. He tells them that the Holy Spirit made you overseers. But certainly it was the other elders, the apostles, who laid hands on them and made them elders in the church. And so we just see the, the working of God, the Holy Spirit, blessing this ministry. In, anyway, in verses 4 through 6, as we see, we see here the travels. And, and that's, that's all that's happening here. We just, uh, we just see the travels of where the Barnabas and Saul are going. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God at the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, if you look at the map here, we're just going to help you, just give you some hooks a little bit about where these places are. I mean, if, if we were around here and we talked about, well, we went to Chicago and then went around the lake up to uh, Lansing, Michigan, and then we went back down to Cincinnati, Ohio, like you'd have an idea a little bit about where you're going. And, and so likewise, we just need to have an understanding of where, where things were. You can see that they began there at Antioch. I put a uh, a little block around that for you. And then they went down to Seleucia. It's about a 15-mile journey from Antioch to the coast. Seleucia is Antioch's seaport to the Mediterranean. It's where the, the people in Antioch received a lot of their supplies and where they, they went to, to trade their commodities down there. I, I think it was a frequent road that was traveled. Uh, so that, that's where all of their goods would come in, and that's where the things they'd make in Antioch would go out. It's a big place of commerce there. One commentator even suggested that this road was so highly traveled that probably a large group from the church accompanied them to the coast. I think it's likely, right? But at that point, right, when they reached Seleucia, those from the church simply raised, waved their hand and said, bon voyage, bon voyage, which in French means what? Good voyage, good voyage, bon good voyage, good voyage. Now, it's worthy to note at this point that Barnabas and, and Saul had a traveling companion. Skipping ahead, at the end of verse 5, we see that they had John to assist them. We've heard of John before. He was in Acts chapter 12. And, and verse 12, that's where we find his other name is Mark. He's often called John Mark. His mother, Mary, was where the prayer meeting was held in Acts chapter 12, where um, you know they're praying for Peter's release, and Peter you know, showed up unexpectedly, though they were praying for him. And so he's got some some relations there. We also find out in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that, that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. So this prayer meeting was, from Barnabas' perspective, at Aunt Mary's house. So there's kind of like this this family ring here uh, of, of circle of these, these people. There's some connections that go way back. If you look in verse 25 of chapter 12, we see Barnabas and Saul returning from Jerusalem, and when they completed their service, they bring with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so this was when they, they went with the, the gift that they, they gave to Jerusalem, 
And then when they came back from Jerusalem, they brought Mark. And I'm sure that right, Mark was there. John Mark was there in Jerusalem. That's where his mother's house was, maybe staying there. And maybe Barnabas you know, struck up a conversation with him and just said, hey, you need to get out, maybe. Or maybe just these wonderful things happening in Antioch. I think you would be encouraged. And, and Barnabas, right, being the, the encourager that he is, thought Mark might really grow in the Lord if he might see all these things taking place in uh, in Antioch and and so decided, hey, why don't you bring him along? And, and it seems like he wasn't there at uh, um, in Antioch very long. But then all of a sudden he's joining on this journey. So he wasn't one who was, who was um, a solid, years-long contributor, um, solid man and from Antioch. He was kind of this guy that came along and was kind of joining them. It says that he was their traveling companion. More precisely, he was their assistant. Even better yet, he was their servant. Now, we don't know how he served those, uh, Barnabas and Saul. We don't know how, whether it was pastorally, right, helping to counsel those or maybe speaking. My guess is that mostly he was administrative, right, running errands, securing places to stay, uh, obtaining food and that sort of thing. I bring him up because it's three people, actually, who are traveling, going across. And we'll hear more about John Mark next week as he leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. And... uh, that event then caused Paul and Barnabas great conflict in future journeys. Well, anyway, from the seaport of Seleucia, they sail, this verse 4 says, to Cyprus. Cyprus is this beautiful island in the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles um, there from Seleucia. In fact, you can sail there in a day, and on a clear day uh, from the, the coast where Syria is, from Antioch, so you, can, you can look out and see, if it's all clear, you can see the island there. Uh, even to this day, it would take only about a day to sail that. I could picture uh, these three men leaving early in the morning, perhaps on this boat, um, and they're, they're sailing across, and then they arrive in Cyprus uh, towards the evening, and they arrived at the city of Salamis, right there on the eastern edge of the of the island, right there in verse five. They arrived at Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. Now, Salamis also is a port city. On the eastern side of the island, and, and there is where they disembarked, and they proceeded to travel across the land by foot. And continuing in verse 6, we read that they went through the whole island of Paphos, to, until Paphos. And so they just, they walked that way, is a, about uh, 60 miles across. You typically, you can walk about 20 miles a day. Could have taken them three days to get there. However, um, I, I think they probably lingered. Because it says that they went through the whole island and they were proclaimed the word of God, verse 5 says, in the synagogues. They were in no hurry of their travels. It's not like they had a destination or a time to keep. They, they had divine appointments to keep. And they didn't know when those were coming. And so they went through the synagogues, talking to the people. And, and I don't know, this could have taken several weeks to travel those 60 miles. Maybe, maybe it took a week and a half. We, we don't know, but they, they walked through there. And that's where our text ends today. It ends with Barnabas and Saul and John Mark in Paphos. But just to help you through Acts chapter 13 and 14, just want to show you where they traveled next. Uh, And next week we're going to see how they they boarded another boat and they sailed up to Perga, which is in this region of, of Pamphylia. And then they went from there, they went north to a place called Antioch. Now this Antioch is in Pisidia. It's called Pisidian Antioch often as opposed to Syrian Antioch, which was the Antioch from which they they left. 
That takes us all the way through the end of Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 14, we're going to see them arriving in Iconium. And from Iconium, they travel on to Lystra. And from Lystra, they travel on to Derbe. At that point, they kind of reach the end of the road. They travel back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and back down actually to Italia, where they, they take off and retrace their steps, and they go back home to Antioch. And all along the way, as they're traveling out, this, this is what they're doing. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples. They're planting churches. It's their whole aim of what, what they're doing going out. Listen to the summary in Acts chapter 14, 21 through 23. You, you can even turn there. This, is, this describes what they did. And what they did here is really probably what they were doing in the island of Cyprus. Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's a great summary what Paul and Barnabas were were doing on their missionary journey, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches. Really what we should be about as well, right? Preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches. Well, anyway, upon their return um, of Pamphylia, they, they, they set sail. Well, here you go. I'm sorry. Here they come. And, and one thing that I would just want to mention is this is Paul's missionary journey right here. You can find this probably on a map of your Bible, in the back of your Bible. I don't think it's the back of the pew Bibles, but most every Bible that you purchase or you buy um, will have this sort of map. And I just want you to have this idea about them going to Cyprus first and going up and then around, and then kind of back again. This is the first missionary journey. We'll be here for the next uh, month, month and a half or so, just retracing, understanding what happened in these, these places, especially excited next week as we get to City Antioch. I've been working really hard to memorize just Paul's sermon to the synagogue there in Acts chapter 13, just give you a taste and a flavor of what it was like uh, there. And one of the things that I have done in my Bible... Here's not a picture of my Bible, but a picture of representation of my Bible. I just put little boxes around every city which the missionary journeys go to. And we see, right, we see Antioch there in verse 1. We see Seleucia in verse 4. We see Salamis in verse 5 and Paphos in verse 6. It just kind of helps give a little perspective. Like, okay, so where is this happening now? Oh, you just look up. Where's my box? Oh, this is happening in Paphos. And so that's maybe a little homework assignment for you to go through all the cities of the uh, first missionary journey. Not now, okay? You listen to me right now. But maybe when you go home, just box them in or highlight them with some color or something like that. Really, it really helps. But here today, we are in Paphos is where they, they, they travel. But first, we're, we're dealing with the traveling. Um, as, they, as they began the missions to the ends of the earth. Now, before we, we leave the travels, I just want to say that the island of Cyprus was a perfect place for these men to go first. Because, any have an idea? Let me just throw that out there. Why was Cyprus a strategic place to go first in their missionary journey? Beautiful, maybe? Blot up pokes, maybe? People going all over? Yeah, sure. So maybe strategic? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, a lot of people there didn't believe in Jesus, right? It's a Roman province for sure. How about this? 
Barnabas is from Cyprus. So it just makes sense that Barnabas then would have a lot of, of context. It tells us in Acts 4, verse 36, Barnabas was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Just think about all the number of people that he knew on the island. This is where he grew up. This is his stomping grounds. Just 60 miles away was the, from one side to the other side. He could walk around the whole island in just a, a couple of days. Anytime he just wanted to get out, he could have done that. Now, Rome, especially the lots of unbelievers there, it was a Roman province. Most of the people of the land were probably secular, probably Roman, probably unbelieving, probably heathen. But even as it says in verse 5 about the synagogues, there were synagogues, there were plural, there were several synagogues here on the island. Now, we don't know how many, but in order to have a synagogue, you need to have at least 10 families, right? You need to have enough families to be able to support the, the local synagogue. And I would suspect, like it is today, the Christian community is much smaller than the big national community, and particularly Barnabas probably would have been known uh, throughout all these synagogues. So wherever they went, Barnabas had already probably been there. He probably, as they went into these synagogues, probably recognized people, um, which really leads then nicely to this second point. My second point here. What was my second point? Oh, well, I'm, I'm giving up my whole outline here. Here we go. Preaching. It's what they were doing. It's they were, were going into these synagogues to preach. They went synagogue by, by synagogue as they traveled through this, this whole region. Um, one commentator said that they went on a preaching tour throughout the whole island. And I think that right here is where Barnabas played such a crucial role along the way. Because he, he knew people in every city. And he could have maybe arranged some housing arrangements. Oh, can we stay with you? Is this a place to stay? Because in the ancient world, you normally stayed with people rather than hotels. Hotels were dangerous back then. And so with Barnabas' friends and acquaintances, they, they would stay there. And, and furthermore, I just think of the credibility that, that Paul and Barnabas would have had as they went through the island. Um, you know, Barnabas could have said, hey, I'm from here. I'm, you are my people. I am, I'm part of you. And here's my friend Saul. And, and, and he's been a big impact on my life, and he's something good to tell you. So he, he, Barnabas could be telling the gospel, and also Saul could be preaching the gospel as well. And I just think, just even this point about preaching and going into um, uh, into Cyprus, a great application for you all, right? Because all of you have your own networks of people. And um, you have friends that I don't have. And you know what? If you have a friend, there's a credibility that you have because you've demonstrated yourself to be faithful in things over a long period of time and people come to trust you and they, they know what kind of perspective you have and that you're not wild out there crazy. You're not some religious fanatic. There's some, some, uh, credibility to what you would say and, and the, the fruit of what it means in your life. In your context, are not my contacts, and your friends are not my friends. Not that they wouldn't be my friends if I knew them, but I, I haven't clicked there to get your friends on Facebook or whatever. They're not my friends. But you're a friend. You know them. In fact, I've even heard it said that you can only have about 200 people in your sphere of personal relationships, people you can be friends with to have uh, around. Just That's the number of people you can know. It's the number of people you can interact with. You just can't interact with any more. Like, Digitally, that's all superficial, okay? I'm talking about just real-life, flesh-to-flesh sort of people that we have. And, and there are people at your work that I've never met that I could never reach. And, and there are people at your school that I could never reach because I've never met them. There are people at your gym that I could never reach. There are people on your sports team that I could never reach. 
There are people in your band that I could never reach. There are people in your quilting group that I could never reach. There are people in your family that I could never reach. And I have the same. There are people in my pool league that you could never reach. There are neighbors in our neighborhood that you could never reach. And the idea is Barnabas came to this place. He had this contacts for a place that potentially was fertile for the gospel. That's why I have a reminder on my phone every every morning at 10.02 in the morning to pray Luke chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I just pray for you all every morning, just that you'd be out in the harvest with your own network of circles of people, that you would be a worker in the harvest. And I think that's what Barnabas and Saul were doing on their, their journey. Right? Barnabas had all these contacts, lots of acquaintances, some relation to some people on Cyprus. And they're preaching to them. That, that, that's all we know, right? They, they went through and proclaimed the word of God, verse 5. They're, they're preaching about how forgiveness of sins can be found in Jesus, how, how we're sinners and we're deserving the, the wrath of God. But the way to be made right with God is not by balancing your, your bad works with good works so that out, outweighs it. No, that's not going to work. The best way, the only way to be reconciled with God is through faith in Jesus and trusting his sacrifice on the cross, balanced and paid and wiped away your sins. As our fighter verse this week says, we thought about and prayed over this morning in prayer meeting. Titus 3, 4 through 6. I've been working to memorize this. Um, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, with whom he has poured out richly on us in the Beloved. And we support out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. I just haven't quite memorized that right yet. That the Holy Spirit's been poured upon us richly. That we have received mercy. But God's given us the Holy Spirit to change us and transform us by His mercy and His grace. And I think that's what they were preaching. That, that it, you're not saved by your works. And particularly if you're going in the synagogues. You're not saved by the law of Moses. Which we're going to hear next week in Acts chapter 13 verse 38. That by... Jesus, Acts 13.39, you can be freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Right? There's faith in Jesus frees you from the law and makes you right with Him. Through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And, and that's what they were preaching through these synagogues. But it's interesting to note that we have no details about this little phrase, this preaching to or through Cyprus. All we know is what verse 5 says. That the word of God was proclaimed in the synagogue of the Jews. That's all we know. We don't know whether lots of converts came. We don't know if there was a lot of rejection. We don't know hardships. We don't. Do... All we know is that they just went through and proclaimed the word of the Lord in the synagogues. Now the key here, though, is, is this: is that Luke was not writing a travel log. He, he was not writing down everything that happened. Rather, he's putting together snippets of what's important for us to know. The way the Spirit of God was, was moving. On the one hand, I wish that there was a written travel log. I mean, I have so many questions. I love to know what kind of contacts Barnabas had, right? They went into such and such a city, and Barnabas was an old high school friend with this person, and they played basketball together, right? And they, they come, and then there was, uh, a, a, like a, a comparison, or, or someone worked for his uncle, or, or Barnabas, and, and, and how he knew all these people, or where they, where these synagogues exactly were. 
that they went to. We went to this synagogue and then to this synagogue and this. And how many people were there? And what exactly Paul and Barnabas said? I would have loved to know, like, the conversations that they had and where they stayed and what kind of contacts they were and how, how many days they were. But Luke didn't do that for us. And, and on the other hand, I'm pretty thankful because it's a lot of details. I mean, our Bible would be, would be pretty thick, right? Not just a, a page and a half of everything that's happening on this first missionary journey. But, but know this, right? That, that God's word is inspired and that what he has given us is exactly what we need to know. All we need to know is that they went out speaking the word. That's all we need to know. That's all that's important for us. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. But now in verse 6, with them having arrived in Paphos, Luke details the interactions of, of Barnabas and Saul and John Mark, but we don't know what, exactly what he did, but Barnabas and Saul with two men. With Bar-Jesus would be my third point, and then my fourth point is Sergius Paulus. And, and so Luke, of all the things that happened, of all the preaching that happened, this is what he gears down is most important for us to teach us of our, our lessons today. <clears throat> First of all, Bar-Jesus. And what we know about him is included in verses 6 through 11, interspersed with some other details. He says, now when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the council away from the faith. But Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now this Bar-Jesus was an evil man. Uh, his name Bar in Aramaic, what does it mean? What does bar mean? Son, like a bar mitzvah, son of mitzvah, commandments. A bar mitzvah is the son of the commandments, the time where you, you enter in. I'm a son of the commandments. This is what a bar mitzvah is. A bat mitzvah is for daughters, right? For, for, for girls. This is bar, and what does Jesus mean? Jesus means <laughs> Savior. This is, the, this is the son of Jesus. This is the son of salvation. This is the, the one who brings and leads to salvation, he was far from a son of Jesus. In fact, Paul even calls him in verse 10, a son of a devil. I mean, you, you cannot get worse to betray your name by saying, hey, I'm son of Jesus. And Paul says, no, actually, you are a son of the devil. It's like exactly opposite. We read in verse 6, also just describing who this bar Jesus is. He was a magician. Now, not the sort of magician that you do a little magic trick. Right? Not, not taking something and making it disappear. Uh, this magician here was, uh, uh, think more of um, a sorcerer, one in the black arts, dabbling in the dark powers of the world, fortune-telling, uh, saying necromant, bringing up the dead, just that sort of evil, um, satanic sort of, sort of thing, something prohibited in the Old Testament. In fact, his activity is so evil, he should have been put to death. Leviticus 20, 27, a man or woman who's a medium or a necromancer shall be surely put to death 
They shall be stoned with stones. Such was the evil of this man. But in a Roman culture, of course, that wasn't taking place. Bar-Jesus knew better, right? He was Jewish. Even it says there, right? He was a Jewish false prophet. He betrayed his heritage. Being a Jewish man, he would have been trained in the ways of the law. He would have known that this is evil and bad, but he went after it anyway. And Luke rightly identifies him as a false prophet. That is, he was not speaking truly the things of God. He was speaking falsities. He was speaking not from the Lord, but from the devil. Now, apparently, as verse 7 says, he was with the Roman council, Sergius Paulus, a high-ranking governor of, of the island. And, and uh, the best we can determine what this means is that Bar-Jesus was probably a, a member of this man's court. So Sergius Paulus, think of him as, say, the mayor of a city. Or maybe the governor of the state. Or maybe he was the man or, or one of the high-ranking officials over all, not just of Paphos, but over all of Cyprus. And he had in this court this magician, probably one of his counselors. Like, like, uh, like the President of the United States has his cabinet. This was a cabinet member in the, in the government of Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus invites, summons Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of the Lord. Now, you've you got to picture what's going on here. He's probably the most powerful person on the island, or one of the most powerful, whether he was the, 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 the high Herod or, or whether he was just one of the, the high ones. He was pretty high. Tony Morita in his commentary says as well, he says, these apostles were nobodies. Compared to the Roman proconsul, yet here they find themselves in front of him speaking good news to his heart. Obviously, that is the working of God. In no way were Barnabas and Saul like contriving to say, oh, we need to go straight for the governor. We need to go straight to the top. They couldn't have planned or arranged a meeting for their own. It was the Lord's working. Right, so it's it's interesting here. As much as in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3, they said, Okay, let's let's send them out on the missions. Right? We're expecting great things from God. Now we're attempting great things from God. And as they're walking through, they, they don't know what God is going to do. And God gives them an audience with the king or the governor, if you will. So the Lord's working. And the Lord may work in your life in a similar way as well. You may at some point find yourself before the, the boss of the country, of, of your company. Or, or may find yourself, right, meeting the mayor of the city sometime. Or just find yourself, just kind of happenstantially, right, meeting in some sort of situation where you have a, a high-ranking official. I just encourage you to be praying now to be ready to speak what you're going to say in those moments, to, to season your speech, as it were, with, with salt, and to speak of the Lord Jesus, if at all possible. Well, from best we can tell, Sergius Paulus was favorable to what he was hearing, but Bar-Jesus, whose name is Elymas, is what we, we read here, um, in uh, verse 8, wanted no part of them. It says, but Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name. There's ambiguity here. We don't know exactly what that means. Whether his name was Elymas, he changed it to Bar-Jesus, or Elymas means magician, or whatever. But he's just this, this man, Elymas. I'll call him Bar-Jesus. But he opposed them, that is opposing Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so the picture we have is the proconsul hearing Barnabas and Saul and listening and smiling, perhaps, and, and, and receiving it well and asking questions and tell me more, tell me more. And here's then this other man, this, this wicked sorcerer coming in and trying to disrupt everything that was happening right there in that conversation. And it makes sense why this man would have opposed these preachers because they were a threat to him. 
They were preaching a different worldview than Bar-Jesus had. And they were a threat to his livelihood. Think about it. If Sergius Paulus comes to faith in Jesus, what happens to Bar-Jesus? He loses his job. He's got to find someone else to sorcerer for. Or he's got to start digging ditches or something. Who knows? But he's going to lose his cushy government job. And Paul discerned this quite well. He understood what was happening. He saw Sergius Paulus light up and begin to believe and begin to embrace these things and begin to be favorable to the message. And then here comes this guy in kind of trying to, to thwart things in this conversation. And Paul, verse 9, says, Saul, who was called Paul. Um, by the way, this is the, the last reference we have in the book of Acts to Saul. Saul of Tarsus now becomes Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. I've tried my message to call him Saul up until this point, and uh, he's going to be Paul from, from here on out. It's because Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Greek name. And now Paul is really going to the Greeks, going to the, 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 the heathen, the pagans, and so his name is going to be Paul from here on out. Paul to the Gentiles. Anyway, verse 9, Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, Looked intently at him. Okay, catch the harshness of these words. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? First identifying him in his being, just who he is. He's a son of the devil. Jesus called the Pharisees the sons of the devil as well, of your father, the father who lies. It's not a complimentary title, by the way, Paul says. He says he's an enemy of all righteousness, right? He's for wickedness. Anything righteous, he is all against that. Also, his being, he's full of all deceit and villainy. He's a lying, a tricky sort of man. That's who he has. And what's he doing now? He's, he's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, are, are speaking forth to the proconsul. They're making it straight, and he's trying to crook it up. Maybe you've been in a conversation like that with someone, where you're explaining the gospel to someone, and then someone else comes in and, and persuades them away, tries to, to pull them away from the gospel. At that point, you need to have some discernment what's really going on here. That, that the person coming in, right, when you're having a good gospel conversation with someone and someone else comes in that's bad, you need to, you need to shut that down if you can. I have a humorous story about this. It goes back to my childhood. and It's not about the gospel, but it illustrates it pretty well. I remember I was at my aunt and uncle's house, and I was probably, um, I was, I was probably like five, something like that. And my, my sister, who's four, um, she was eating this broccoli, and she was loving these broccoli. There was some green vegetable, right? Something that kids typically don't like very much. And and uh, she was eating it up and doing quite well. And somehow, I, I was told the story. I don't remember it myself. But I came on the scene, saw in the kitchen, and said, Sonia, we don't like broccoli, do we? And here, at that point, at the age of four, she said, no, I don't like broccoli. And she turned away with the broccoli and was done with broccoli for a season. All because of the influence of someone who came in to persuade her away from something that's good. And, and that can happen easily with the gospel. Is, is, that, is, is that someone's receiving it. right? They're, they're, they're talking about it. They're, they're open to it. And then someone else comes in and destroys the conversation. And just be alert to that when you're speaking with people. And Paul's words may sound pretty harsh of what he did. Calling people the son of the devil. 
um, may bring to your mind back Peter's confrontation with Simon Magus. When Simon Magus tried to purchase the Holy Spirit, you remember what Peter said? Acts chapter 8, verse 20 and following. He said to Simon Magus, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with your money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And there was, was Peter discerning the, the wickedness of this man's heart and just confronts him strongly and boldly. And, and there are times for such bold and, and confronta- such bold confrontation. Even think about the gentle and lowly Jesus. Did he ever do this? You bet he did. You bet he did. He, he cast the deepest of condemnations about those who would cause little children to stumble. Matthew 18. The, the gentle and lowly Jesus was so angry at the commerce, the wicked commerce that was taking place in the temple that he made a whip. That means he, he, he saw what was going on and just hated it and he took time and he made this whip and he went in and he drove out all these money changers from the temple. Now, that can't just be done by just saying, um, please leave, this isn't what God intended. With violent force, he was so angry at them that he thrust them out of the temple. Think also Jesus was harsh with the Pharisees, calling them fools and blind guides, calling them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs, pronouncing great woes upon them. Now when it came to sinners who needed forgiveness, Jesus was never harsh. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And, and that's why sinners love to be in his presence. Tax collectors and, and, and sinful women of the street love because he's coming with grace. But against those who would purport themselves to be teachers of religion, who are going a false way, he was strong and hard against them. That's why Paul here was harsh with Bar-Jesus, this religious leader who was leading others astray. Bar-Jesus knew better, and he needed a rebuke. And, and he needed to be rebuked by Paul so that others would see, oh, here's a religious leader, and he's against that, like, like they're not teaming up. Bar-Jesus, oh, Jesus, Paul's preaching Jesus. No, they're different, and Paul had to make... That difference known. I can think of a few times in my life I've been particularly harsh with people. I'm, I'm often harsh when people knock on my door with a false gospel proclaim, proclaiming to be true witnesses of God and yet peddling lies about my Savior. It's not the time to be gentle. They need to be rebuked strongly as false teachers who are blaspheming the Lord by calling Jesus a mere man or angel. I remember one time, shortly before I was married, working at a, at a college, I was in a line at the cafeteria, and there was a man who I, I just met and had some conversation, and then he arrogantly used the scriptures wrongly and degraded women. And, and I, I knew this man came from a false church um, that required some legalistic requirements for one to be saved, and I strongly rebuked him right there in the cafeteria line, corrected his his um, misquotation, rebuked his heritage, his, uh, his interpretation of the scripture, rebuked his arrogance, and told him that he needed to learn the ways of Jesus. Well, later he came out and said, you know, Steve, I think our, we got off on the wrong foot. And I said, yeah, we did, because this and us. And I never became friends with him, only seeing him a few more times. 
But, but uh, it was because of his arrogance and because he handled the word of God wrongly and because he's degrading a woman. I just stirred in my heart and said, that is wrong. He deserved a rebuke. He purported himself to be this religious teacher and he was wrong. I can tell you, other times have been harsh and confrontational as well. I mean, I, I remember especially strong towards some wayward parents who are not doing right towards their children. And I laid into these parents. What they're doing is wrong. They think it's... And the thing is that they thought it was right. They thought it was godly. Professing to use the Bible to say this is what they were doing. But it was dead wrong. I can remember other times just doing that. And I think that in those instances, what has stirred me has been the Holy Spirit. Just provoked deeply in my heart, particularly with people who are putting forth lies as leaders seeking to lead others astray. Maybe not being official leaders, but putting themselves in a place of authority or excellence. Or here's the way we go, and it's, it's totally wrong. And I do believe it's been the Spirit of God in my life to confront people so strongly in those few instances. Mo- mostly I'm a pretty mild guy, but there are times where my soul has been stirred. And I think that that's what we see here with uh, the Apostle Paul in, in verse 9. We just read this little phrase, but Saul's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He was freshly filled with the Spirit. So it was the Spirit of God in his life just provoking him to act. And maybe you've had experiences like that in your own life as well, where you've been provoked to act and you act strongly. I just encourage you. All right, when people are peddling lies, and, and if they are right, seeking to influence others, set the matter straight with Paul. Now, you don't need to say exactly what Paul says here in verse 11 when he strikes the man blind. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. You don't need to do that, okay? In fact, I'm not even sure you'll be able to do that. Uh, all these, these televangelists, I never see any one of them striking people blind. In fact, I, I've not even heard of this happen other times where someone rebukes someone and strikes them blind with such clear um, evidence of the power of their, their speech. Right? But... Paul, being the apostle in apostolic, miracle-working times, was able to do this. And we see the proof in the next half of verse 11. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Of course, this brings back Paul's own experience on the road to Damascus. When he was struck blind as well, you can read the story in Acts chapter 9. I think there's some parallel between Bar-Jesus and the apostle Paul. This Pharisee of Pharisees, purporting himself to be so religious... And yet he was a blasphemer, persecutor of the church. He was a religious leader pushing his false way in clear defiance of the word of God. And he was struck blind by the voice of Jesus. He encountered him directly. And, and he went about like looking for others to try to lead me, lead me where I need to go. Now we know how it turned out with Paul. He repented of his sins and became the great apostle Paul. She trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins. We don't know how it turned out with Bar-Jesus. We just know that for a time, as Paul said, he's going to be unable to see. Probably a day, probably two days, probably a week, something like that. We, we don't exactly know, but, but he then eventually regained his sight, but was blinded that moment. All this is really is just an, an object lesson. What, what was true of the inside of this man became demonstrated outwardly. That he was blind in the heart to to the things of God was blinded outwardly to the things of this world. And that's what Paul did. 
And so I think learn from the story of Bar-Jesus. There are times where we need to be bold. Times where we need to confront error. And particularly do that with people who are, who are arrogantly setting themselves up and trying to make crooked the straight ways of God. Not, don't do that with people who are broken in their sin. People who are sorrowing or people who are just meandering, trying to figure out which way to go. Be gentle with them and be gracious to them. But when the truth of God is coming and people are being deceived, stand up, speak boldly. Well, we see here, Sergius Paulus, my, my last point there, verse 4, we're finally getting there. He, he comes up in verse 7 and verse 12. We see his heart warming to the things of, of Barnabas and Paul in verse 7, that he, he summoned them and sought to hear the, the word of God. It was his initiation that said, hey, I, I hear about these preachers out here and, and I want them to come. And I, let, me, let me listen to what they're saying. And then we see his heart believing in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord you know, one of the best questions in Bible study to ask, like we, we ask at some of our small groups, right? We ask five questions. What's the big idea of a passage? How are the original hearers here? Where's Jesus in the gospel? And that fourth question we ask, what's the fourth question we ask? What is, what's surprising, right? And, and of this verse 12, what is surprising at this verse 12 is the second half. I would expect it to read this. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, period, end of stop right there. Like he saw what occurred. He saw the miraculous power of God that, that Paul is able to make people blind to rebuke them. And wow, that's so powerful. I'm going to pursue this other, this powerful Paul. Well, that would have been merely um, Sergius Paulus exchanging one spiritual power, a bad and evil bar Jesus for another one, Paul. But that's not where it ends. He saw what occurred and believed. But what was it that convinced him? He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was the teaching of the Lord that astonished him. And in fact, even he says here in verse 7 that he was a, a man of intelligence. And being a, 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 a political leader, a governmental leader, he had some sense about him, probably, that we hope that political leaders have some sense about them. And uh, he was a, a man of intelligence, right, to be able to think. And, and as he heard what Paul was saying about Christ being the Messiah and, and probably talked about this same outline, right? He lived this perfect life and he, he died this death on a cross for our sins and he was buried and then he raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now he's exalted as Lord over all and giving verses and, and passages and how that fulfilled the Old Testament and how everything that he saw and experienced was exactly true. That's, that's what the, the astonished the proconsul was, was the, the teaching of the Lord. And just that would be a super encouragement for all of us, right? Because we don't need to be go out making all these miracles and doing all these fabulous things because miracles never convert anybody. It's that God using the, the Word of God by the Spirit of God to convict people's hearts that they might turn and trust in Christ. And so all you need is the Word of God. It's the Word of God which got into this proconsul's life. He saw what all happened and how strongly Paul rebuked and maybe saw how, how Paul was... Uh, uh, responded and dealt with that situation, how much he believed and trusted in these things, and how much he was transformed and changed. We don't know exactly what the teaching was he heard, but he was astounded by it. And I, I just encourage you, church family, that you, the Word of God, God's Word, the Bible, the Gospel, is what's strong and what's powerful, what's able to amaze and what's able to convict and what's able to convert. 
don't worry that you can't do these miracles and things like that. Even even here, it's just clear is that it's not the it's not the miracles that astounded him. It was the teaching of the Lord. And then next week we're going to see Paul just kind of go on. We hear nothing more about Sergius Paulus, but we trust that his heart was truly converted deeply into the things of God, and that he became a man of God. And the uh, island there, Cyprus, was never the same again because of the influence of God upon his life upon that city, upon that island, upon that place. And that's what we long for, right? We long that God would bring people to Christ, that he would change them and transform them. In, uh, in Titus, right? We just looked at Titus 3.5. I said that that was our, our fighter verse there. You often see the grace of God coming and always works itself out in good works of what people ought to do. I mean, you look at Titus, that's the whole idea. Is that Titus was an island? Uh, Titus was written to the island of, of Crete is where he was. And on this island, there were, there were false, lying, deceiving people. But the power of the gospel came and, and taught people to deny ungodliness and, and, and unrighteousness and walk in a righteous way, zealous for good deeds. And we trust that's what took place with Sergius Paulus. She was this governor changing perhaps the, the whole flavor of the island that he governed over. But we don't know any of that that happened. It's all in the, the white space before verse 13. But we're going to see next week how Paul and his companions go from Paphos up to Perga and Pamphylia. And I just encourage you, be here next week if you want to really embrace and understand what's taking place in Acts 13 as we hear this sermon from the Apostle Paul and what he preached there. So let us, let us pray together here. Father, I would pray as we see here today the beginning of the mission to the ends of the earth. God, this is just the first step that we see of how your gospel is going out and, and making a difference. And it's not easy. Oh, God, it is it is hard. Uh, I just think about William Carey and the hardness that he that, that endured, the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that he endured. He, he endured abandonment from his friends, um, finances in dire straits, uh, sickness, children, his his wife not doing well psychologically, and yet pressing on and pressing on. God, this, these are hard things. Just thank you for the wisdom that you gave the Apostle Paul that Luke has written down for us. And I pray, oh God, that you would give us such similar wisdom that as we deal with those who are opposing the gospel, or, or, or maybe there are, are tender moments for people who are, are open to receiving the message of Christ and someone else speaking into that, I pray you'd help us to understand when to be bold and how to be bold. God, clearly putting forth the glories of Jesus who died for us. God, who reconciled us to you. Who transformed us into your image. God, who brings us in as sons of God with whom we can expect an inheritance. May that change us and transform us, oh God. That we would not be people who simply hear the word of God, but we would go and do the word of God. Fill us, oh God, with your spirit. Stir us afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.